This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, so of course, Hanukkah is the time of the menorah, the miracle of the menorah in the Beis Hamikdash, and certainly the time where we actually bring a little semblance of the Beis Hamikdash into our homes and into our shores, because both of those places are actually called the Mikdash Ma'at, miniature sanctuaries. Ever since the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, the place where we most palpably feel Hashem's presence is both in the shul and in the Jewish home. Now, one time in the year, we bring some of the temple service, some of the avoda, into our homes and into our shuls with the lighting of the candles, which is, resembles the menorah in the Beis Hamikdash, at least in some way. But I think this uh, this talk is inspired by the collective yearning of the Jewish people over the last 2,000 years for Mashiach, for the restoration of the Beis Hamikdash, for the avoda, for the service in the Beis Hamikdash. And Hanukkah is certainly a time where we're meant to feel that yearning, feel that longing, to get back that which we have lost. And the Hashmanayim fought with all of their strength and with all of their might, with superhuman, supernatural strength, to reclaim the Avodah in the Beis HaMikdash, to reclaim the service in the Beis HaMikdash, which was taken away from them because the Kohenim were indeed themselves negligent in their responsibilities. So because the Kohenim were negligent, Mipnationist Rashlu Ba'avoda, they were more interested in going off and watching sports in the nearby amphitheaters and offering up animal sacrifices in the temple, something which they perceived perhaps as being antiquated. It was taken away from them, and they had to fight to get it back, and that's why this fight was specifically done by the Kohenim, because it was there to rectify historic error, mistake, error of judgment, that indeed was perpetrated by the Kohenim in the temple around about the time of the Hanukkah story. It's somewhat uh, inspired by this, <laughs> a visit of uh, Netabibi Netanyahu to the Vatican, presenting the Pope with the menorah, and of course the caption, <laughs> it's like this one, only bigger. You'll let us know if you see it lying around, right? And that really is somewhere in the collective Jewish consciousness a deep-seated feeling or sentiment that it must be in Rome somewhere. Um, there are accounts over the years of people that claim to have witnessed the temple treasures in Rome. Famously, a Libyan rabbi, the beginning of the uh, the 20th century. Fanciful, fantastic story, in fact of um, a rabbi who's the chief rabbi of, uh, of Libya by Yitzchak Chai Bozovka, who's a big Talmud Chachem. Apparently, in 1929, Italy's king, Vittorio Emmanuel III, comes to Tripoli for a royal visit. Libya there was under Italian rule. They made a big reception for him, and this rabbi made a huge impression. And in fact, the king invited the rabbi to attend the wedding of his son, the prince, and the rabbi is invited. He didn't want to go. He said, I'm weak. So why am I needing to go when you've got the Pope? 
Within 48 hours, apparently, the king sent a telegram back saying, don't worry, I really want you to come. I'll send you my royal boat, I'll give you kosher food. Signed it, apparently, your friend the king, apparently he agreed, he blesses them. And the ceremony came to an end. The king asked the rabbi if there's anything he can do for him. He said he'd like to see the holy vessels of the Jewish temple in the cellars of the Vatican. The king said, it's got nothing to do with me. But apparently, the king was able to do so, managed to convince the Pope, but also the rabbi alone. The rabbi apparently meets the the guard at the Vatican gates. The students remain outside. He goes under the steps, four stories under St. Peter's Museum, hidden maze of ancient galleries attached to the necropolis. Finally reaching the cave entrance, he saw what he saw and right in his, in his safer. I saw enough. He couldn't see any more. Turned around and practically ran out. On exiting, his students were shocked to find his face was shining. From that day forth, the rabbi took upon himself to abstain from speaking until he dies 40 days later, February 21st, 1930. Now, I have no idea whether one can confirm such a story or not. I don't know at all. If there, what, how much truth there is to such an account, but what it certainly does do is express this sentiment, this feeling that the temple treasures are in Rome. After all, the Romans destroyed the base of Mikdash, so why wouldn't it still be there? And there are stories. This uh, that's just one example of a story. There are others. Take it or leave it. Let's see. So, of course. The thing that sparks our interest is indeed the Arca de Tito, the Arch of Titus, with um, with clearly represented the menorah here. And in fact, Josephus himself in the Jewish Wars in chapter 6 talks about the menorahs similar to those deposited in the sanctuary together with tables, bowls and platters, all of solid gold and very massive, all taken up to Rome. He further delivered up veils, the high priest's clothes, including the precious stones, many articles for public worship, a mass of cinnamon and cashew, and many other spices. The spoils in general were born in promiscuous heaps, but conspicuous above them alone. Stood the tam- that stood those captured in the temple of Yerushalayim, the golden table, many talents in weight, the menorah likewise made of gold. I say for Torah. They followed a large party containing images of victory, all made of ivory and gold. Behind them drove Vespasian. He was the one that initially led Roman forces before he was proclaimed emperor in 69 CE, followed by Titus. Domitian, his brother and future emperor, rode beside him in magnificent clothing and mounted on a horse that was itself a sight. So Josephus the Jewish-Roman historian, the former Jewish rebel turned Roman historian, writes that the temple treasures were brought to Rome and indeed that would seem to be indicated by the Arch of Titus itself. And that image of the menorah is something which is so powerful that it was adopted, it's the same menorah that was adopted as the emblem of the state of Israel, as if to close the circle. The olive branches that we see on the sides are in some way a depiction of that which we read in the Haftarah for Shabbos Hanukkah, of Zechariah's vision of a menorah, the two olive trees on either side, providing an endless stream of oil for the menorah. 
When you look at this menorah carefully, the one that was brought to the Arch of Titus, or brought to Rome, but depicted on the Arch of Titus, you'll see certainly in the bottom, there are images. One of them is a lizard-like, darukoin, as it's referred to. And in fact, the Gemara says, that anything that has these kind of graven images on them, we should be concerned that these were actually items of idol worship. So that does raise a major question about whether this was indeed an accurate representation of the menorah. In fact, when the emblem of the State of Israel was being designed, there was much debate about the pictures on the bottom of the menorah, whether or not they were indeed appropriate. Because historically, these were certainly things that would not have been on the menorah in the Beis HaMikdash. But again, this image is very striking. The contrast is so powerful. And perhaps we'll return to this a little bit later. But one thing we do know, and this again would seem to um, be corroborated by Josephus' accounts, is that the Gemara says in a number of places, Rabbi said, I saw the tzitz, the head plate of the Kohen Gadol. And holy unto Hashem was written on one line, as you can see here. There are different ways of writing it. Kodesh on one line, Lashem on an upper line. But this is the way that it was written on the tzitz that was found in Rome. And we see Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer is answering this debate in the Gemara by saying, well, I saw it. You can argue about it all you want, but I saw it with my own eyes. In fact, there's a tesefta that says, I'm Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer. I saw the paroichas, the very curtain of the Beis HaMikdash in Rome. And there were drops of blood on it. These are from the bloods, the drops of blood of Yom Kippur. Meaning, the Tosefta is saying that even the very paroichas survived the destruction of the temple, was brought to Rome and had blood on it from Yom Kippur itself, as you can see. And if that wasn't enough, says so Rabbi Shimon, when I went to Rome, I went to Rome, and all the indeed all the all the all the candles were inclined towards the Ner the middle candle, as we know it was in the time of the Beis HaMikdash being standing. So we have three sources in Chazal saying that the temple vessels are in Rome. And we have Josephus. And we have the Arch of Titus. You put all of that together. That does seem to be a pretty impressive amount of evidence to indicate that the temple treasures were certainly taken to Rome after the destruction of the temple. Where were they taken to? Here's a depiction of the Temple of Peace in Rome. This is where they were stored. And this presumably is where these Tanoim would have gone to see these clay hamikdash in the Temple of Peace. And here you see the Temple of Peace as it is today. What's fascinating is how close it is. It's, 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 it's 500 meters away from the Arch of Titus. Maybe less as the crow flies meaning whoever built the Arch of Titus 
wouldn't have had to have traveled far to see the menorah itself in the Temple of Peace in Rome because it was just up the road. And therefore, perhaps it would be safe to say that the, the, uh, the images on the Arch of Titus are accurate. Because whoever built it would have had ready and easy access to be able to see the menorah. Interestingly enough, as a professor from uh, Yeshiva University, whose name eludes me for the moment, I apologize, um, did some work in 2012 up close on the Arch of Titus. And they were able to, um, using the latest in modern technology, were able to do a, a survey of the arch from up close, as I say, and um, look at the various different colors. They found specks of paint on the um, on the arch, and therefore they've colorized it, as we say. They've colorized the arch, and actually they had ochre color paint, gold paint for the menorah itself. Uh, which would obviously make sense. The Arch of Titus was coloured in. Paint is still there microscopically. And the menorah would have been in gold. Yet another indication, because we know it's a menorah zaftar. The menorah indeed was made out of gold. And this is perhaps, based on their research, or based on his research, what the um, the arch would have looked like after it was built, when it was painted. The reason why this is interesting is because we have a big debate. Was the menorah round, as per the picture on the right, or was the menorah straight? In fact, if you go to any Chabad, Hanukkah lighting, if you go to any Lubavitch home, you'll see they always have a menorah, Hanukkah menorah, with straight arms, though there's no real halachic reason why the menorah you have at home needs to mirror the menorah in the base of Mikdash. No reason whatsoever. Um, in fact, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's menorah that he used until the year 1982 was a wooden menorah that had straight arms and bent upwards. But in 1982, after a shir he gave, the Hasidim made for him a menorah that had these straight branches like the menorah you see here. And wherever you have a Chabad menorah, they're always made out of straight, um, straight arms. Where does that come from? It comes from the Rambam's own manuscript. And this was actually even corroborated by the Rambam's son, Rabbi Avraham ben Harambam, who said that his father, the Rambam, held, this wasn't a schematic drawing, he actually held and believed, and this also allegedly the opinion of Rashi, that the, uh, the branches of the menorah were indeed straight. We'll see a little bit of evidence for that soon. But we see the Arch of Titus as a round menorah. And if we are correct, that whoever built the Arch of Titus would have had access to the menorah itself, and the menorah was in the Temple of Peace, then that would be a problem, according to the opinion of the Rambam. Interestingly enough, there's more of a problem in that all the images that we have from the post-temple, or temple and post-temple period and various archaeological finds relating back to right around the Temple era in the land of Israel, always has the menorah with round branches. And therefore, the overwhelming evidence of archaeological research would point to a menorah with round branches, as per the Arch of Titus, rather than straight branches, as per the opinion of the Rambam. 
So you see, the menorah was is possibly or probably the oldest Jewish symbol. Mogin David, that's a share for another time, exactly where Mogin David comes from. Whether it's got anything to do with David HaMelech, highly unlikely. What exactly it is, what it represents, why it's a Jewish symbol, something to explore. But the menorah itself was an ancient Jewish symbol. You see, you see it, for example, on burial tombs. Okay. Um, and you um, therefore seem to have a problem with the opinion of the Rambam. Now, the reason why this is interesting is as follows, because the Gemara says this, the Gemara says in Masechus Menachus, Rabbi Yaisi bar Rabbi Yehuda, Oymer af shal eitz le ya'ase kederech sha'asu malche beis chashmenoi. Amr lo misham raish shepidim shal barzal hayu v'chipim ba'eitz ha'eshira asam shal kesef, chalzu v'eshiru asam shal zahav. Says the Gemara. Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Yehuda, says, you're not allowed to make, the, the, the Gemara is talking about how we're not allowed to make our own copies of the temple, um, the temple implements, the temple utensils. You can't even make a seven branch menorah out of wood. In the manner that the kings of the Chashmonaim did in the temple. The, the menorah that the uh, Chashmonaim made was made out of wood. The rabbi said to Rabbi Yossi, why can we improve from them? The times of the Chashmonaim, it wasn't made out of wood. It was made out of spits, shipudim, of iron, that they covered with tin. Later, when they grew richer and could afford to fashion a menorah of high-quality material, they fashioned a menorah from silver. When again they grew richer, they made it out of gold. So first things first, whatever image you have of the Hanukkah miracle, taking place in the base of Mikdash, of happening with a gold menorah, forget about it. It wasn't there. The Greeks had already removed it, destroyed it, defiled it, desecrated it. It was not there. The Maccabim had to make an ad hoc menorah. You can see here, this is one potential depiction of it. Literally a bunch of straight metal poles. I was doing a little bit of research into it. One of the academics felt that actually what they would have used was this, used spearheads, seven spearheads on a frame, and that would have been the menorah that they used, because in fact the spearheads themselves are hollow and could have been used to create a flame, as you can see here. So maybe the Maccabin came, weary from battle, and they used the shipudim, these iron poles, and made a menorah. Just by the way, those that say the menorah was straight will use this as a proof text because the menorah, because there the Hashmonaim's menorah was certainly made out of straight poles. There's another thing too. There's a Medrash Rabbah in Bamidbar that says, and this is talking about the first temple, when the temple was destroyed, the menorah was stored away. This was one of the five things that were stored away. The ark, the menorah, the fire, the Holy Spirit, the kruvim. When Hashem returns in his mercy to rebuild his house and his temple, he will store them to their place and cause Yerushalayim to rejoice. As the Pasuk says, Which means, 
that the original menorah that was fashioned by Betzalel, together with Moshe Rabbeinu, was never present in the second temple. It was never there. That means there was another menorah that was built at the beginning of the time of the second temple. There might have been a number of menorahs that were made. They didn't have a lot of money at the time of the second, the beginning of the second temple. Very feasible to assume that they couldn't afford to make a gold one straight away. Just by the way, the halacha is all the um, the, the kaftarim and prachim, all the different knobs and all the different flowers that adorn the menorah, the halacha is you only make them when the menorah is made out of gold. Last year I gave a shir explaining the, the rich, deep, powerful significance of all of those ornaments. Feel free to... Uh, to look it up. But if you make a menorah out of any other material, which you can do, be it silver, be it tin, be it iron, then you don't put any of the decorations on it. None of the ornaments go on it. So there must have been a number of menorahs at the time. That probably also means, again, as I'm saying, there was a new menorah at the beginning of the second temple. They just made one. That menorah, would have been desecrated, destroyed, defiled by the Greeks, the Yavanim. The Maccabim, as we know, made one out of tin and then silver and then gold. Presumably it was that gold menorah that survived until the destruction of the Besamikdash some 200 years later. And therefore the menorah that you see on the Arch of Titus would have been the menorah that was made by the Hashmonaim kings. So it would have been a relatively late uh, menorah being introduced into the base of Mekdash anyway. In fact, if you look here, you see the um, topography of Har Habayis of the Temple Mount. As we've learned a number of times before, Herod essentially boxed off the mountain in order to turn it into a square, in order to create a much bigger platform upon which to build his um, second, his newer, improved version of the second temple, an expanded version of the temple. But what is highly feasible is that uh, Shlomo HaMelech would have created these subterranean passages that would have preserved the Kalim of the Beis Amikdash, the two Luchais, the Hashem gave on Harsinai, the original menorah, somewhere deep in the mountain. And they've lain there undisturbed According to some opinions, the Mishkan is also there. Would have laid there undisturbed for two and a half thousand years. The menorah that you see in front of you is a menorah that was fashioned in recent years by a Machon HaMikdash. You see they've opted for the round, the round branches. You see, they've got all the uh, the kaftarim, the prachim, the knobs, the flowers. If you look very carefully at the base, they do not have the image of the darkoin on it. They do not have these idolatrous images. Just by the way, how did we answer that question? If the menorah from the Arch of Titus is the um, the menorah from the base of Mikdash, what's with the idolatrous images? Well, it could just be that the artist added them in. For, uh, for artistic purposes. It could also be that in the journey back from Eretz Israel, when they looted the menorah, the base got damaged or broken, and they put a new one on. Anything's possible. It's all conjecture. It's all theory. 
The question is, where is it now? What are we meant to take from this? And the Vatican always gets pressed. Yeah, all different opportunities for this, Kalim. Sometimes by high-ranking officials in the Israeli government. They laugh it off. And whilst there is some kind of romantic notion that we have that it's there, the bottom line is the Vatican, or the Rome, I should say, was destroyed a number of times. The Viscoths was destroyed by people that came from Carthage. It's burnt to the ground. What we can say with some level of certainty is that the menorah was in Rome. It's fair to say you've got Josephus, you've got the Arch of Titus, you have Chazal saying that the menorah went to Rome. Remembering, of course, that this is not the original menorah. This would have been the Hasmonean menorah would have made it to Rome. Where is it now? Anybody's guess. Is there a small chance that it's there? Anything's possible. Is it more likely that it was looted when Rome was sacked? I think so. Is it possible that it uh, sunk in a ship at the bottom of the sea? Also possible. Is it possible that it was melted down? Highly possible. Gold doesn't generally get lost unless there's an accident. It generally just gets changed into something else. Could it be a mental downturn to any kind of thing. But perhaps the most important thing to realize after we've gone on this little journey is that it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because the menorah that was made was not Moshe Rabbeinu's original menorah. And just like the Maccabim made a menorah out of uh, iron rods and then silver and then gold, these things can be made again. And indeed, that's what Machon Mikdash have done. They believe that this menorah is 100% halakhically valid. It's made out of one single piece of gold. How do they do it? To so go there and visit it, it's amazing. The exhibitions are remarkable. They have so many of the kalim ready to go. They used a mold. They poured in liquid gold. And this is the first menorah that we've had in the last 2,000 years standing there waiting to take its place in the Beis HaMikdash. Though, truth be told, of course, we won't need it, because the Medrash told us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is keeping it, and he'll bring Moshe Rabbeinu and Betzal's menorah out of the subterranean tunnels in the Temple Mount and bring them back. So is the menorah in Rome? No idea. One thing's for sure, though. The menorah most certainly is in Yerushalayim whether you're talking about the menorah that was made in recent years, or whether it's the menorah that is just a few hundred meters behind where this picture was taken, in the depths and the bowels of the Temple Mount. Perhaps, therefore, our priority ought not to be about getting the Temple treasures back. What are you going to do with it anyway? Perhaps for us, the most important thing to do is to keep on yearning for the Besamikdash, to realize that as we are right now, we do not have the ability to fulfill the Torah in its entirety. We're missing so much. Our lives are essentially dark because we don't have the light of the temple's menorah illuminating the world. To yearn for that, 
to learn about it, to do our bit to bring Mashiach, to add more light to the world. So I think in conclusion, that's the message that we need to take from Hanukkah. Is that the menorah is there to illuminate there are mitzvah of a Torah are. And it's not about being a raider of the lost ark. It's not about going on some wild goose chase. And there are all kinds of fanciful theories. There really, really are. There's, there's so much I haven't brought. Because so much of it is speculative. Even you have Benjamin of Tudela, who was the, uh, the 12th century Jewish traveler. He makes reference to, uh, to Jewish travelers back in Rome from the temple. Who knows? Who knows? But these are the things that capture our imagination. Well, these are not really the things that ought to be occupying our minds. It's not really something that is ultimately that important. Because as I said, the original one is anyway in Har Habayis. And there's one that at least, according to Machon Amikdash, is valid and kosher. Anyway in Yerushalayim. So it's not the kind of thing we want to go on a wild goose chase for. Rather to yearn, to daven, and to play our part so that we really have the real thing. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.